All right. With that, let's pray and we'll, we'll um, study the word of God together this morning. Lord, it's a privilege that we have to come together and, and to gather for, uh, for giving you praise, to gather to share together. Lord, I pray that we would come with a mindset that says, I am ready to encourage someone else, and I'm also ready to receive encouragement. And I really pray that's a two-way street, that, that we sense encouragement because of our time together. But Lord, we are also coming and we recognize that this is, this, our time together goes so much deeper than just people gathered. We are here and we want to hear from you. And you have, you have revealed your will to us through the Bible. And so we come wanting to study that, understand that. And I pray that you would speak to us right now as, as we look at, at the Bible. Lord, minister to each of our hearts. You know where we are at today and you know what we need. And by your spirit, you are able to minister in the most appropriate way. And so I just would ask your spirit to do that right now in these next moments. In the name of Jesus, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Have you ever found that you were right where you needed to be in the exact moment you needed to be there? I, I, this last week, I, I had to ask, I was asking myself that question. Have I ever found that I myself was exactly where I needed to be at the exact time? And while I wish I had this grandiose story of this is how it all played out, you know, nothing really quite came to my mind, but what continued to come into my mind over and over again as a youth pastor, I led 13 mission trips in 17 years. The most recent mission trip was to a small, small town in 2016 called Bliss, Idaho. Do you even know where Bliss, Idaho is at? Some of you are saying, yes, you do. I had no idea all I, all I had was this sense that, God, I think that I'm supposed to take my youth group to Idaho. I really had that sense. And so I contacted Brian Wexler, who's the head of Village Missions. And I said, Brian, can you hook me up with a church in Idaho? And he said, I'll get back to you. And he said, in a couple days, he said, Bliss, Idaho. I want you to go to Bliss, and I'm thinking, where's Bliss? I have no idea where Bliss is at. I mean, I know Boise and I know a couple others like Twin Falls and Coeur d'Alene. I have no idea where Bliss is at. So we go to Bliss, Idaho. Population, 306 people. As of 2017. And we put on a sports camp, actually a soccer camp. We led a soccer camp there for these people, focusing on children. Now, for a town of 306 people, we had about 50 children who came 
day after day that we poured into. And while we were there, we saw children respond to Jesus, place their faith in Jesus. But not only did we see children do this, because this is a small town, there's nothing else to do. I mean, except for go stare at the cows. Like, what else are you going to do? And so we had people, we had parents who would come drop off their kids and then just hang out, hang out at the church, hang out at the school. It was, there was the one church. Because when you've got 306 people in a town, you just need one church. And right next to that, there was a big soccer field and then the high school. And we stayed in the church and we showered in the, in the local school And these parents would come and they would just stay there. And they would just watch our students work with their children. And teenagers who had nothing better to do stayed with us, showed up day after day. They were some of the very first people to arrive. And they just enjoyed being there. On our last evening in bliss, we were out on the soccer field The sunset was phenomenal. And we were singing praise songs in worship to God together. And just thanking the Lord for what he had done in bliss. And then two of the teenagers that had been with us all week pulled up, came to us, and wanted to just join our circle. And after about 45 minutes, they had to leave And they said goodbye, and they came and they gave each one of us a hug. And I remember when I gave them a hug, teens were crying. And not not just our teens, these two teens from Bliss were crying. I believe that God wanted us there. In that moment for people like them. See, I don't think there's any kind of accident with God. I had never heard of bliss before. I mean, I had heard of bliss, like blissful. But bliss, Idaho, I couldn't point to that on a map. And yet, that's where God placed us. And these kids that we were playing soccer with, God intended for us to be there with them. And these teenagers who left crying, God intended for our paths to cross. I want you to hear this this morning. All throughout this message, God accomplishes his purpose. Period. Are you with me? God accomplishes his period. Guess what? He's willing to use us if we make ourselves available. But also, guess what? If we don't make ourselves available, God still accomplishes his purpose. He still does that. To keep us from thinking higher of ourselves than what we should or what we need to, God's purpose prevails. 
You hearing me? God's purpose prevails regardless of whether I join with him in mission or not. His purpose is going to prevail. Have you ever heard this statement before? I have. God should be glad he has me on his team. Have you ever heard that before? Arrogant. Ridiculous nonsense. Have you ever heard this statement before? Well, it sure is a good thing that God has so-and-so on his team. Foolishness. That's just ridiculousness. God's purpose prevails with or without me. I get the choice. Am I going to join him or not? That's what it comes down to. But guess what? Even if I don't, God's purpose still prevails. Because it's not like God is up there. We always say up there. Thinking, well, I sure hope that Nathan's going to get my team because if not, I don't know what I'll ever do. No. God does not need me. I need him. You need him. God's purpose prevails regardless of whether or not I get involved. But guess what? This is the beauty of it all. I get to be Involved. I mean, God actually invites me, not because he needs me, but he allows me to get on mission with him. He lets you do the same. That's, that's incredible that God would choose to use me and you. Take your Bible. Turn to the book that we're going through right now, the book called Esther. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to the the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Um, I failed to look at what page it's on, but if my memory serves me from last time, it's like around 360-something, I'm thinking. What is it? Oh, I was way off. 779. Okay, thank you very much, Janet. Oh, your other Bible. <laughs> well, okay, what is it, Ryan? 354, there you go. I was close. I was only off by six. All right. Well, regardless of whether, whether you use the P-Rack Bible or Janet's Bible or the Bible on your phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love it. All right. We're going we're gonna to cover, if we can today, we're going to cover two chapters, okay? Um, next week, I'm going to bring the conclusion to Esther. I mentioned that we're only here for four weeks, okay? So we're going to get to the conclusion next week here. But today I'd like to go through um, and look at Esther 4 and 5, if we've got the time. So let's begin by looking at verses uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done... He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. 
She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Pause there. Okay, so just a reminder what's going on here. A decree has been issued which is calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. On such and such a day, this is going to happen. There is going to be a mass annihilation of the Jewish people. What's the response of Mordecai? He does what any good Jew would do. He tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and dabs ashes all over his body and begins to weep and mourn and wail. Why? He's been given a death sentence. That's why. Esther hears of this. Queen Esther hears of this. And she's kind of embarrassed and sends an attendant to bring clothing. Put yourself together, man. Put yourself together and put these clothes on. Come on. Does this strike you odd? That from all appearances, Esther does not know of the decree? Because Mordecai uses Hathak to communicate to Esther and says, here's why I'm doing this. If you understood, you'd probably figure out this is the reason why the queen herself from, okay, I could be wrong, but from all I can gather from the text is she doesn't understand this decree. But I also understand because it's mentioned a bit later that she hasn't been in the presence of the king for 30 days. And, and this was an interesting culture. Though she is the wife of the king, let me rephrase that. Though she is one of the wives of the king. This was just, it was just sick. She was the prized wife. She was the best wife. 
She seems to have no idea of this decree. And Haman says, hey, there's a decree. Let me spell it out for you. Here's what the decree says. Pass this on to Esther. Let her know what's going on so that this makes sense. And Haman says to Esther, in essence, I want you to go. Would you go and plead for our people? Because you're our only hope right now. I mean, there is no sense of hope apart from, the, apart from you. Would you go into the king's presence and plead, beg for mercy? Read on. Verses 9 through 11. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, here's what Esther says to Mordecai, all the king's Officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare him or spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. I just imagine Esther saying, okay, Mordecai, you want me to go. But Mordecai, I don't know if you understand how things have been the last month here. He hasn't even summoned me. I have not had any any interaction whatsoever with the king, with my husband. I haven't had this. And yet you are wanting me to go to the king and plead. Isn't it interesting how Mordecai at first was saying to Esther, hide your nationality. Don't reveal your nationality. You don't talk about the fact that you are a Jew. And now remember, this is a reversal story. And now, Mordecai is kind of saying, you're my only hope. You are my only hope. For crying out loud, woman, tell him you're a Jew. That's that's what I get a sense here. Please, tell King Xerxes that you're a Jew. Identify yourself. So there's this pendulum. Don't tell him. Please tell him. Read on. When Esther's words, verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, I I get the sense that Mordecai is very much probably thinking about himself here, and I I don't fault him for this. I think he's very much thinking about his people. Esther, our salvation rests upon you right now. If you do nothing, what are we going to do? And yet there is a sense that he says, if you are silent, then God will help his people somehow else. 
Meaning, you have a choice, Esther. God will use you. Or you can opt out. And if you opt out, God will bring deliverance some other way. Now, what are you going to choose, Esther? Was this a little bit of a guilt trip, perhaps? I don't know. Was it, I hope that she chooses. Come on. You got to pull through for me. It could have been that. I don't know. But please, go. And, and Mordecai is saying, Esther, I want you to think about this. You are the queen. You are the queen right now. And don't get fooled into thinking that this is any kind of mistake. God has you where you're at for a reason. God has put you here for a reason. Now, Esther, what are you going to do with that? Esther, please, don't remain silent. Verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat, do not drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I'm amazed at the attitude of Esther. I'm amazed at that line there. Okay, you do this, and if I perish, so be it. If I perish, I perish. But before I go, I ask, here's the stipulations. You put together all of the Jewish people, and you fast for three days and three nights, Don't eat and don't drink. And then I will approach the king. Though it is against the law, I will approach the king on the behalf of our people. I want to pause here for a moment. And I want you to consider with me the providence of God. So I I said two weeks ago, and I mentioned again last week, that the overarching theme in the book of Esther is the providence of God. But what is the providence of God? What is providence? So this is just a really basic definition here that I'm going to pass on to you. Think about it. God, in wisdom and love, directs all things in the universe to accomplish his good plan. That's providence. That's the providence of God. God is directing. He is directing all things to accomplish his good plan. And he does this in wisdom and love. With a definition like that, we might be tempted to ask, well, then is God the author of evil? I mean, if he's directing all things, so then is God the author of evil? Without rabbit trailing here too much, God's wisdom has allowed for people to make choices. This is part of God's plan. This is part of his sovereign plan to give people the ability 
to make choices. And in that ability, guess what? We choose poorly. We have chosen poorly. But this is why I love Esther. In the midst of people's poor choices, God's plan prevails anyway. God is still using the freedom that he has given people. And by the way, when evil happens, it's not like God is saying, whew, didn't see that one coming. No. He, he understands. He, there are no surprises. And yet God is able to use that which is evil, that which goes wrong, that which from our perspective, this doesn't make sense. God is able to use that and bring about something good. He causes good from that which is difficult. That's the providence of God. Consider four verses this morning. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. That's providence. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. This is Jesus speaking here, and he says this. He, referring to the heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, our heavenly Father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Guess who does that? God. God does that. That is God's doing. He chooses that. Daniel 2, verse 20 and 21 next year. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Kelsey years ago had a Bible study, and we actually wrote a song to this. And I, whenever I Whenever I see this verse, I always think of this song that we wrote. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And I I cannot help but think about that. It goes on. Wisdom and power belong to God. But then it says this. God is the one who changes times and seasons. God is the one who sets up kings And he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. That's what God does. God does that. And how about this one? Acts 17, verse 26. This is Paul at Mars Hill. And he says this, From one man God made every nation of men. Why? That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Guess what this spells out? You are not an accident. You're not an accident. By God's design, you are here now. It's his plan. I remember I was probably a teenager when this is something that I kind of connected the dots on. I remember, and maybe you remember going through this too. God, I could have been born anywhere in the world. And yet you saw fit that I was born here. I could have been born in Uganda. I could have been born in Afghanistan. I could have been born in Venezuela, anywhere. And if you say, I was born somewhere other than here, 
Praise the Lord. God saw fit that you were born somewhere else. And guess what? You're here right now. And know this. That is also by God's design. There are just no accidents with God. You are here for a reason. I I want that to, to resonate in your mind. This is no accident that you even sit here at 1030 Sunday morning at Kingwood Bible Church. You are here for purpose. And God's purpose, I'm telling you this morning, and I hope you don't miss it, God's purpose prevails. Let's continue this narrative. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. Thump, thump. Thump, 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 thump. Don't you think that would have been, here we go. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, Well, what is it you want, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, Queen Esther, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king come with Haman. Come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared as they were drinking wine. The king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, Queen Esther, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition... And my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Pause there. Esther, after three days of fasting... Esther approaches the king. And what is the king's response? He extends the gold scepter. Meaning, you may come. And Esther approaches and touches the tip of the gold scepter. And she speaks. And I get the sense that there is this togetherness. This respect, if it pleases the king, I have prepared a banquet. Would you please come? And would you please bring Haman? Okay. Was there this part of Esther thinking, 
when the king Xerxes said, Esther up to half the kingdom, was there this part? Yes! I'm in! First off, I'm not dead. Second off, I can have half the kingdom. Let's run right now with it. I'll take it. Deal. I, I don't think there was. I really believe that she was bent on, I don't care about the kingdom. I care about my people. Because she even thought about this before responding to the king. She could have said, I'll take the kingdom. I'll take it. I'll take half. She never does it. King, come. I have prepared a banquet. Come. And make sure that you bring Haman. Bring him. And while they're there, as they've been drinking, Queen, Queen Esther, tell me, what is it that you want? King, do not become aggravated with me. If it pleases you, my king, I would like to prepare another banquet for you. Remember I told you, this is a book of banquets. Come again tomorrow. And then I will let you know what my request is. He knew she had a request. What is your request? Come tomorrow and I will tell you. Read on. Verses 9 through 14. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction whatsoever as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Well, Honey, just have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and then you may be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had a gallows built. Whew. Evil man. That's an understatement. I mean, this is the guy, Haman, who cannot stand Mordecai. How does he pay Mordecai back? I shall kill him. No, I shall not just kill him. I shall kill all of his people. And what does he do after a hard work's day in convincing King Xerxes to 
have a mass genocide, sits down for a drink with the king. And now his wife and his friends say, just kill Mordecai. And this is what brought him delight. He's a sick man. Haman is a teeter-totter. He goes to the banquet and he becomes arrogant. I am the one who's been chosen to attend (laughs) the queen's banquet. No one else is going, but I am. This is incredible. And I will rub this in the face of everyone else. And then he teeter-totters this way because as he leaves, he sees Mordecai. And he is aggravated. That's the man that will not bow down to me. Doesn't he know how great I am? I am second in the kingdom. And he will not bow down to me. This rubs me the wrong way. What will I do? And he is teeter-tottering back and forth. So his wife says, build a gallows and kill him. God's providence is at play here. God's providence includes placing Esther as queen at this time, placing Mordecai in the position that he is in at this time. I want you to see this, though it still is difficult in many ways. There isn't this great solution yet, is there? Mordecai and Esther are placed in the position that they're in for a reason. I want you to hear this this morning. God has purpose. And his purpose prevails. We have the opportunity to recognize that and to join him in his purpose and his mission we have this opportunity. A couple of questions I want you to think about this morning. If God has his way, his way, not your way, and if God uses you as he wants, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like? If God is to use you as he wants, what does that look like? And while I ask you that, I want to ask you this. What stands in the way of you surrendering to him? For him to work in such a way. Can I ask you this? Is there a neighbor God would like you to extend help or get to know? You know, isn't it amazing? So often we don't even know our neighbors. In the year 2019, so often we don't even know who's next door to us. Who's behind us? Who's across the street from us? Who's diagonal? We just, we don't even know. Do you know them? Perhaps God is saying, I want, I want you to get to know them. 
Maybe that's part of God's plan. Is there a family member who you can bring encouragement to? You say, this is a family member I have, and this person needs great encouragement. Has God laid on your heart someone you know who needs Jesus? Um, in light of this message, I've been thinking about this too, and I, I want to be careful here, but I, how could I not think of it? I think that we appreciate living in America. I really think that we do. But there's a lot in America that we do not appreciate. As believers, there's a lot of things that we would say, that's not me, that's not who I am, that's not the values I hold. Okay, bring that closer to home. We live in the state called Oregon. There are a lot of things here that you and I probably have trouble with. Perhaps those things differ a little bit, but I'm sure we could all say, these are some things that are hard for me. Guess what I'm telling you this morning? Now, I am not telling you that it is never okay to leave. But I have never in my 41 years of life, I have never heard so many Christians talk about leaving the state of Oregon until this last year. And guess what? It makes sense to me. Okay? I'm not saying like it doesn't make sense. But I'm telling you this. God put you here for a reason. And until God gives you permission to leave, just because things might take place that you don't like, I don't believe that we have license just to say, well, that's it. Now, if God says, I want you to go, then you listen to that voice. You listen. But I think that we can become people that are quick to complain and say, I don't like this, I don't like this. I believe that God has purpose. God is not surprised by what takes place on the national or the global or the state level. There are no surprises to him. And you and I are here for a reason. May we be in tune enough with the Spirit of God to know what the purpose is. Because I believe the Spirit will not leave us hanging, but he will let us know, this is why you are here. For such a time as this, 2019, Willamette Valley, greater Salem area, we have purpose. May we recognize that God has placed his church here, Kingwood Bible Church, here for a reason. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that you are providential, that you have plan. I thank you that your plan is going to prevail. Regardless of whether or not I join in mission with you, Lord, may I also recognize that I have this incredible opportunity of joining you. And if I do, I believe that you want to do a work in and through me, in and through our church family. You've got plans. Father, may we be careful not to become conceited because we need to recognize that this has nothing to do with us 
other than us being obedient, being submissive to your voice. But it is you because your plan is the one that will prevail. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.